Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin, recording from my home studio in Westchester County, New York, in my basement, technically. So when we go to the grocery store, we're used to seeing labels like USDA Organic or Fair Trade Certified to ensure the products we're buying meet certain regulatory standards. Today's guest, Austin Whitman, endeavors to do the same thing for greenhouse gas emissions with a label called Climate Neutral Certified, which lets consumers know they're buying from a company that actively measures, reduces, and offsets its carbon footprint. Founded in 2019, Climate Neutral is an independent nonprofit organization that works to accelerate the transition to a low-carbon world. With its three-step process for making carbon footprinting simpler for all kinds of businesses, the organization helps set clear guidelines and parameters. To date, more than 75 brands and companies are climate neutral certified. Austin, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thanks, Aaron. It's really good to be here. It's great to see you. And what we referred to, or I referred to earlier when we were talking off air, bike candy, because I can see your bikes, you and your wife's triathlon, high speed, beautiful bikes that might not have been used in the last couple of years, but hopefully will get used again in the future. So it's great to see you and your bikes sitting behind you. I am also a fellow basement dweller at the moment, trying to keep in a quiet place in this weird world without office spaces anymore. But yeah, there's some bikes that are waiting to be ridden again on the wall behind me. It's interesting. I mean, there are a few businesses that are doing very well in this environment. And these bike shops now, for good reason, are absolutely killing it. They're crushing right now. Totally. It's actually really cool to see the amount of people who are out just moving about on two wheels. I mean, and people who are buying mid-tier bikes because it's kind of their first big foray out into the world, not in a car in many, many years. And so, yeah, bike stores from what I'm hearing are selling out of that type of bike. It's cool. And hopefully orthopedists are not doing as well and that people are staying safe and being <laughs> smart on their new wheels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So we're not here to talk about bikes. We're here to talk about you and this. I don't know if it's fair to call it a startup. You started this a year ago. Just talk a little bit about the impetus behind Climate Neutral. It's technically climateneutral.org. That's where people can learn more. You have an interesting background in the environment, in energy. You're a consultant, engineering. You're kind of a little bit of a renaissance man and a cyclist. What was the impetus behind starting this organization just a little more than a year ago? That's a great way of putting it. I've certainly been described as that in the past. And what was interesting about the timing of an introduction in October of 2018 to a mutual friend was that I had been working on climate change. I sort of think of there are three main ways we can deal with climate change. And I've been working on two of them for many years. And those three are, we can change the rules of the game. We have governments make new policies that just shift all of our focus into low carbon. And the second is money. We can redirect the flows of capital into low carbon assets. And I'd worked both of those for basically the better part of the last 15 years when I went off and got an MBA, but with a focus in environmental management. It was a dual degree at a, at a school of the environment. And then had spent a bunch of time thinking about how we can get better policy in place and how we can redirect finance, redirect money. And in October of 2018, it sort of felt like, man, I've been working on this for a long time. We really haven't seen a whole lot of progress. And if you look at the macro numbers, we're just not making it where we need to be on climate. And so a high school friend introduced me to his friend, a guy named Peter Daring, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Peak Design. 
And he had been on his own journey with his own company, trying to figure out what their carbon footprint was, feeling increasingly guilty about the stuff that they're making and shipping around the world. And went, got his company footprinted, spent a lot of money on that, and then offset all of their emissions and spent far less money on that than he had expected. And was starting to hatch an idea that this should be something that's made much more accessible to other business owners and to other corporate managers. And so I sort of started off in carbon offsetting in 2005, 2006, when it was, I guess I'll say the first inning of carbon offsets and things went really quiet. I hadn't thought about a carbon offset in eight years, probably. And when I started talking to Peter, it was like, man, this is a chance to get to the third piece of the puzzle, which is people. Just what do individuals do? What choices do they make when it comes to the climate? And so having, again, kind of worked on the policy, the rules piece, the money piece, this felt like a great chance to add a third piece to my quiver because I do like to sort of think of things holistically and work different angles of problems like this. So it was really exciting to talk to Peter and I wound down the work that I was doing for a clean tech company over a period of about three months and then started climate neutral working on it full time in the beginning of March of last year. It's been a great ride so far. What was Peak Design? What kind of company was that? They started off with a what they call capture, a camera clip that goes onto a backpack strap to help you more easily carry an SLR around and branched out into backpacks and travel gear and photography gear. They're one of the biggest success stories on Kickstarter. They're fully crowdfunded. They're about to do their 10th round of Kickstarter funding. And so Peter's the founder of that company. And then Jonathan Cedar, another co-founder of Climate Neutral, he's the CEO and founder of a company called BioLite, which makes it's a very interesting business. They've got two parallel businesses. One is based in Kenya, one's based in the US. And the Kenya business distributes cook stoves to households in sub-Saharan Africa with the idea that you can decrease indoor air pollution, which is great for human health. It's also better for the climate. And then in the US, they have a business that makes backyard fire pits and headlamps and portable solar panels and those kinds of things. So Peter and Jonathan sort of kindred spirits and having been through a similar journey as business owners, and that was the founding group. So I was going to say the fourth vector, because you mentioned three areas, is really just you have to also be a little bit of an entrepreneur in order to launch something like this. You're just as much an entrepreneur in launching a nonprofit, if not even harder and more so than you are when you're launching a for-profit. Yeah, it's funny. I was making my list about two years ago of what would I want to do in my next job. And certainly right toward the top of that list was, I would love to just start something. And it doesn't matter whether you're starting something that's for-profit or non-profit. I mean, every organization has to fund itself and for-profits fund themselves typically through selling products or services and non-profits fund themselves by either selling services or convincing philanthropists that they should give them money. But we are fundamentally performing a service for a donor that gives us money because they've got a mission, they've got an interest in making the world a better place and we're helping them do that. That part of it has been just tremendously fun, sort of taking something from really the ground level and building it up. Are your donors or individuals, institutions, grants, all the above? We've had a mix so far. The lion's share of it has come from Peak Design. We also did a Kickstarter campaign ourselves last year, and we raised about $50,000, which for an organization like us is real money. We have a grant from a foundation called the Malago Foundation in San Francisco. Their big focus is impact at scale. 
We've got a grant from an accelerator program that kicks off this summer. We've got a grant from BioLite. And then we've picked up some small individual and foundation donations along the way. And then increasingly, we'll charge small fees to companies for certification and carbon footprinting and stuff like that. But we've always intended that this will be something that has very low costs to entry because we really are in this for the impact. Yeah. And the greatest cost really is your time, your team's time in convincing brands and organizations to sign on, change their behavior and adopt your process. 100%. Yeah. It's a pretty lean operation. We're four people right now and we don't need to be 400 in order to have massive impact. You've been, as you alluded to earlier, on all sides of the environmental industry. You've worked directly, consulted directly with energy and oil companies. You've worked in clean tech. You've seen quite a bit. What do you think is the hardest thing to do? And how do you create the argument for a brand to step forward, really show up, is it probably a better way to say it, to adopt a process like this and not look back? And how hard is that? Because part of your job now is you're like this, for lack of a better word, salesman. You're pitching constantly. That's your job. Absolutely. Pitching to funders, pitching to consumers about the label and pitching to brands about the certification. And each of those pieces is really important. What we saw with the advent of green business, which is sort of no official beginning, but I would say probably happened around 2002 or 2003, at least in the modern economy. Eco-labels date back to the early 90s. Actually, there was some eco-labeling back in the 1920s. But really, the modern movement started just after the turn of this century, 2003 timeframe. And what we learned, I think, the first time around is that many companies got on the wagon just as quickly as they were willing to get off the wagon. And we saw this with oil companies, and we saw this with large consumer products companies and folks like GE, where they would launch an entire business venture and then shut it down just because they couldn't pull it off. And I think that was because a lot of people either were trying things that were too complex, honestly, and they couldn't pull them off. And they realized that they didn't want to damage shareholder value. And so they just decided they would just spin off or shut down the operations. For smaller companies, it was very easy to adopt environmentally focused messaging and people could call anything green. And there really was no standard definition or really much of an expectation around what green business was. And that, I think, was a great chance to learn a lot of lessons, but there really hasn't been a whole lot of evidence that that first go-around was all that productive from an environmental standpoint. So I think the biggest challenge for us now is getting companies to see this as something that's more of a permanent shift in consumer preferences, so that not only do they see value in the commitment to getting certified, but that they see that value being sustained over time so that they stick with the certification. So that rather than just a quick blip where they get on, they get off, this becomes a just a structural shift in how companies do business because you can offset your emissions for a year and then stop. And that really hasn't achieved much in terms of long-term thinking. But by offsetting your emissions and committing to do it every year, and also implementing long-term plans to reduce emissions, that's more of the kind of structural shift that we really need. Who are you typically speaking to at the brand level? Because right now they're dealing with things like ESG. You've got business roundtables saying that the aperture is wider now. It's not just about the shareholder. It's about stakeholders. It's about doing good. Whether or not I believe them, it's a whole other thing, but at least they're saying the right thing. And then you've got B Corp, a whole other different 
certification process that is potentially inclusive of what we're talking about. And you are singularly focused on the environment, which I think is important. And sadly, there's still a lot of work to be done. Who are you speaking to on the brand side? Who's the decision maker? And how hard is it to convince them that they need to do this in addition to everything else that they're doing? And now also confronting things like racial injustice and systemic racism. And there's so many other things that they have to focus on. So how are you going about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I would even put it more specific than we're focusing on the environment. We're just focusing on the climate part of the environment. And there are people who are thinking about chemical toxicity and worker exposure to environmental harms and other aspects of air pollution that don't relate to climate. So we're a narrow slice of the environment. On the flip side, climate is a pervasive issue. Without dealing with climate, land conservation is kind of moot because you can conserve a beautiful piece of land, but if the habitat for whatever lives there is moving 400 miles north over the next 100 years, that piece of land isn't serving its conservation purpose. And that's what I think has made climate this incredibly scary but important problem to deal with is that all of the environmental issues are in some senses underneath the umbrella of climate. We talk to heads of marketing typically and CEOs and heads of sustainability, of course, and occasionally product people who have been working on considering the environmental trade-offs of different parts of their product design and are building a groundswell of support and interest in decarbonizing the impact of their operations. And you're right, there are many items on the agenda of all these people. And when we go to them, they'll list off the five or six or 10 different pledges and programs and certifications and everything else. And the first question we get is, how hard is this to do? And the second question is, how much does it cost? And Then there's people who say, man, you know what? I'm aware that we need to do more on climate because our customers are asking us about it, but I don't know where to start and I don't know what to do. And so that basically is sort of like three questions. How hard is it? How much does it cost? And then where do I start? And we've tried to take those questions and provide very simple answers. How hard is it is we've simplified it greatly by making a software tool that footprints organizations much more easily than they might have done otherwise. How much does it cost is well under 1% of revenues, and in most cases, less than a half a percent of revenues all in to buy the carbon offsets and to get certified. And then where do I begin is this three-step process. And so we lay that out very clearly for people. You have to measure your emissions for one calendar year. You have to offset those emissions for that calendar year. And then you've got to put together a reduction action plan that says, here are two or more things that I'm going to work on over the next year to reduce my emissions directly from within my operations. And that can be an energy efficiency project, an incentive for employees to not drive to work. It can be a reduction in business travel targets, although we're sort of... (laughs) Not seeing a lot of that right now. It can be replaced. It could be use of technologies, new technologies and solar panels and things like that. Yep. New technologies for energy, new materials in the supply chain. There's all kinds of ways to do it. And we've got a little reduction guide that we give people. But basically, 
how hard is this? How much does it cost? And where do I begin are kind of the three things. And so we try to just create as little requirement for deep thinking and big budgets as possible so that we can just get people on this path and make it easy for somebody, even if they don't have a full-time team dedicated to it. I've had a few guests on where they're claiming or that they are or will be carbon positive. That's something, at least in my world, is kind of a new term in the last year, year and a half for me. I've heard about carbon neutral offsets, reductions, and I've always felt offsets were a good starting place, but a half measure because it's just an offset and has to be, to your point, followed by some sort of reduction plan. But is it possible to be carbon positive? I'll be honest, I struggle with that term a little bit because arguably if you measure your footprint at 100 tons and then you offset 101 tons, are you carbon positive? (laughs) You're still putting crap into the air, right? Into the environment. Yeah. I think the argument there is you're doing more than the cost. There's a couple problems with that. One is that you never know with 100% certainty that your footprint is 100 tons. Your footprint could be 110 or 150 tons. Typical margin of error when you include value chain emissions, which is a really important distinction. And we do include value chain emissions. That's all the upstream emissions from things like shipping your products around the world and raw material extraction and everything else. There's always a margin of error. You can go pay a consultant $40,000 and they'll hand you a report. And the numbers they give you will be plus or minus 15 or 20%. So doing that one more ton of offsetting won't necessarily be carbon positive if the number that you've estimated for your footprint is actually 15% below what I would say is, quote, reality. So I think you have to go significantly beyond an estimate to be considered anything close to carbon positive. And you do run the risk of getting back into greenwashing because it makes it feel like your whole existence is about benefiting the climate. Your existence should be about righting the wrongs that we're all doing for climate. And the, the state that the world needs to get into is a net zero state by 2050. So we're going to continue to watch and see sort of who's defining carbon positive and decide whether we want to pull in any aspects of that. But for now, I think neutrality is so far away from where we are today that we have a long way to go and would rather not worry too much about these semantics. Yeah. And it becomes, like you said, greenwashing or a marketing platform when in reality, it's almost an impossibility. Do you think that every company, I think I know the answer is every company can probably do better. But then I think about companies like UPS, Amazon, FedEx, heavy, heavy polluters is probably not the right word, but they definitely have a very large carbon footprint. Do you think even companies like that can be participants in this journey and be better? Is there room? Absolutely. UPS, FedEx. I mean, I watched the little U.S. Postal Service truck drive up the street every day and it goes five yards from one house to the next, turns off its engine, starts it again, drives five yards, turns it off. I mean, if ever there was a great use for it, you've probably been golfing before. I mean, you've driven a golf cart. Like those things should be golf carts. They should be roadworthy golf carts, which are electric designed to stop and start. All the delivery trucks, UPS, FedEx, they do similar stuff. They're usually short haul, so they're a perfect candidate for electrification there. They also ship by air. Honestly, I don't stress too much about air travel or air emissions. It's less than 2.5% of the global footprint, and air travel is such an essential thing for the global economy. I'm a realist, and we don't want to destroy kind of life as we know it by forcing everyone to just use ponies again. 
where I just sort of draw the line is all those companies have cleaner alternatives in their core operations. They can insulate, they can electrify their warehouses and distribution centers, they can electrify their transportation fleets. Where I draw the line is with fossil companies. I think that fossil fuel companies, uh, and I have healthy debates with Peter on this one, but I don't think that we owe them any favors as far as kind of saying, oh, why don't you guys just offset your emissions and there's nothing to worry about? It doesn't work out from a global carbon balance standpoint for us just to keep pulling fossil fuels out of the ground and then somehow magically hope they're going to go away by offsetting those emissions. For these other companies, I think the important thing is get them started on something today and get them working on long-term structural changes of their infrastructure. So yes, I mean, larger companies, whether it's UPS, FedEx, Microsoft, talked a lot about carbon and they're doing a lot today. They're not exactly a high emitter per dollar of revenue, but they all have a role. And what about people who say, I mean, you went to school in New Hampshire, you're surrounded by cows. What about the cows? What about the meat industry? What about people who say, yes, this is great, but a large part of emissions and a lot of the impact comes from cows and from eating meat? Yeah, cows and other ruminants. I mean, it's a problem. And there's no question that going to a more vegetarian or vegetable-based or non-meat-based diet is really important. There are companies experimenting with technology to change cows' diets by adding additives that reduce methane emissions. There's one that I know of that is growing seaweed to feed to cows. And evidently, it doesn't change the cost structure all that much and does tremendous things, like 80% reductions to the methane emissions from cows. So the ideal case is technology solves every problem. We get to live life as we know it now and, and love it now and don't have to make any sacrifices. Probably the more likely case is that we end up somewhere in the middle, having to make some cuts to lifestyle, but also relying on technology to solve a good chunk of the problem. And there's so much work to be done that let's try to focus on things we can control immediately within our grasp. And a lot of it's behavior-based. It absolutely is. And we all have that choice. And if you eat 12 ounces of meat a week, switch down to eight. That makes a huge difference. There's really great research out there on the food supply chain, pretty unrelated to climate neutral, but I find it pretty fascinating because we all eat food. And one question is, am I better off eating meat that was grown 20 miles away or a bean that was grown 2,000 miles away and shipped here? And the answer is definitely the bean. There's no question. If you look at the carbon content, and the attribution of different parts of the production of that food, the transportation is a tiny slice. So it's all about what you eat. So yeah, shift from 12 ounces to eight ounces of meat a week, and you're doing a great job. What was the first brand signed on? That must have been an incredible feeling, and maybe a couple of them signed on at the same time, but what was that like? Yeah, we did a full court press after launching March to June last year. We wanted to recruit some brands to be able to make a splash at the outdoor retailer conference. BioLite and Peak Design, of course, were the first two. Shortly after that, we had a mattress company called Avocado, which was a big one. They're a big company, and they spend a lot of marketing, which has been great for us because even late last year, there were ads with our logo on them in Architectural Digest, and there were boxes showing up on the doorstep of sports figures in LA. And so they were a really exciting one. And then we signed on a whole bunch of folks from the outdoor industry. We got up to 16 and in June, it was like, wow, this thing is, this is going to happen. This is real. And a huge amount of credit for that, of course, goes to the teams at BioLite and Peak Design, kind of recruiting folks from within their industry who were just really excited about this opportunity. And then we sort of staged more of a focused sales effort 
between then and the remainder of the year, and we had 150 companies committed by the end of last year. What's the biggest or the kind of the most pervasive, most impactful brand to date that you think has signed on in terms of awareness and also in terms of action and impact? That's been a really hard thing for us to quantify because different brands have brought different things to the movement. Allbirds is a huge name. Everybody knows them. And so it's a great name to drop at the beginning of a meeting with someone new where you immediately get acceptance because they know that name. They've been more focused on their marketing plan as opposed to our marketing message. And so their name brings us a lot of momentum, but we're talking about brands here on this podcast. And I think the interesting thing is that you can find small and medium-sized brands in our collection that have tremendously loyal customers. And where one a small brand gets on board, one of their customers finds out about it and then starts sending tweets to folks like Patagonia saying, hey, you guys should do this too. There's not any single one metric as to what's made a brand really valuable to us. Our chief operating metric is carbon. So we really care about getting larger carbon footprints, which means larger companies. But on the way there, we need to get consumers on board and we need to get more small companies on board. And that happens as a result of all kinds of different folks joining. And I think you make a good point in that consumer awareness. You don't have hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on paid media and on advertising. So you have to lean on your partners and even the smaller ones appear bigger than they are. They have a big footprint in terms of awareness, like all birds. You have to lean on them to help spread the message. So that's part of the strategy. And I think that's genius. 100%. We did some math on this and figured out we probably would have hit about 110,000 consumers last year on our own, but we ended up hitting more than 10 million once we added up all the different places where we were able to get the message out. So their megaphones are basically our mouthpiece. And that's been unbelievable. And we think that that's going to continue. Climate's so important to consumers. I mean, it's the thing that companies want to talk about. It is. And I know that one of your colleagues, I think it's Jack Horowitz, wrote a piece in Medium, or on Medium, I should say, about COVID-19's positive impact on the environment. So here we are sitting in our basements. COVID-19 is a terrible, highly infectious, deadly disease. It's still taking lives around the world. We're not back to even whatever the new normal is yet. Talk a little bit about that, just in general, based on your background, not just based on what you're doing now, but just based on your understanding. I imagine that there are some positives in terms of awareness around the environment and climate and climate change as it relates to a virus like this, and there'll be others to follow. This has been an evolving question since the beginning. I think within the first few days, people said, why doesn't climate change have a publicist like COVID? Because people caught on to the critical nature of solving or getting on top of COVID really early, really quickly. And these talking points took shape in the public sphere and the public discourse, like you need to flatten the curve and you need to social distance. These very simple concepts that embodied research and science, social distancing is based on research, six feet. That number wasn't just pulled out of thin air. Flattening the curve is based on linear and logarithmic curves of infection rates and transmission rates and everything else. Why hasn't climate been able to do something like that? We need to flatten the emissions curve. So I think early on, people were talking a lot about how climate change has really failed 
or the people working on climate change have failed in their ability to kind of crystallize these messages like COVID. But the other thing that we saw then within two or three weeks of the real lockdowns was these amazing pictures of air quality in cities like Delhi, where you can never see the building two blocks away. And suddenly you're seeing the Himalayas, or maybe not the Himalayas, but you're seeing the mountains in the distance. And even though that has very little to do with climate change, it really brought home, I think, for people, the connection between economic activity or human activity and environmental quality. And one of my hopes is that people will remember that. And I certainly don't expect lockdown status to become normal life for everybody. That would be a shame if it did because of how much we'd lose. But for people to remember that when they make decisions and to think about, there is an amazing thing that happens when communities of people get together and change their behavior. And that can really have immediate impacts on the environment. I think the numbers around total global carbon emissions, people are estimating now about five to 7% decline as a result of the lockdown over the course of this year, which is unfortunately not even as much as we need to achieve if we're going to hit net zero by 2050. So there's a lot more that needs to be done, but I think we have had this opportunity to sort of turn down the volume on so much human behavior and see how it affects the environment. And the truth is, is that making changes either at the corporate level or as a consumer, behaviorally or and buying habits, are far less disruptive than what we're dealing with right now. So it's like we can actually make a bigger impact. And maybe what we need to do is draw a more, there needs to be more linearity between climate change and fatalities and death and disease and sickness, because we don't talk about that enough. People think about climate change and think about, oh, poor climate. No, it's actually humanity. And there's a direct link when you're talking about a virus, but we need to maybe make that link more direct. I would love to think that that would help. I think that we've, for years and years, been seeing some pretty compelling and astounding numbers around the economic costs of climate change. And yet that has failed to mobilize governments. Even more direct than that, we see incredible numbers of death and disease, mortality as a result of coal-fired power generation, not just in the US, but India. And those deaths are very, very measurable and attributable to the stuff that comes out of coal plants, which is the dirtiest form of electricity generation. And yet, we still build them. And I think the question is, now that we know just how vulnerable we are as a human species to these kind of global threats, are we going to be a little bit more willing to say, yeah, it may be more convenient to build that coal plant, but it's probably not the best thing for us as humanity. Because if we ignore these existential threats in the same way we learned not to do with COVID, we're going to be in a world of hurt in a couple of decades. So I have to hope that we see attitudes change. But the science has been pretty definitive. Now, maybe the question is, is the science being communicated adequately? That's the issue. It hasn't really hit the mainstream, or it's been kind of dampened by others. <laughs> I won't even go in there. But I think that's also part of the problem. And there's a lot of money and influence that's centralized against this. And it's not in a collective or in a community-based environment, which is what it needs to be, to your point earlier, in order for it to be impactful. And that's that part of the problem. I think that's right. I mean, and I think that simplicity of the label that we're trying to give to consumers is something, like you say, we don't want this to be super complex and challenging. We want someone to be able to literally go into a store, whether it's online or physical, and pick the thing with the label. 
and know that the brand that made that thing has measured and offset and reduced its carbon footprint. And if every company did this, then we'd have far lower emissions. So last question, I probably have 20 others, but I know we're running tight on time. At what point do you think you can get retail on board where they actually then say to CPG companies and folks, the products that they're selling, hey, if you want to sell here, this is the label, this is the behavior, this is what we expect from you, because otherwise you don't really have a place in our store. And maybe I'm overstating that. It's an on-ramp process, but you're exactly right. You're totally spot on. And we had conversations going on with two major retailers before COVID. And of course, those came to a halt because so much has been so challenging for them. But the idea was that you'd find ways initially to start putting this label in front of consumers. So first, you just provide the symbol. Maybe it's an in-store display. Maybe it's a little tag on the search function in the website. But first, you just introduce it to people. And then you start to use this as really a booster in the retail environment. Products that have this tag get put in preferential locations. And then you start to use it as a requirement. So only products that have this tag get sold in this store something like that. So it can be a progression. It doesn't need to be all or nothing all at once, but you're totally right. I mean, the retail channels are going to be critical for us to get the label in front of consumers and to inform those purchases because that's really where so much of the commerce actually happens. Listen, Austin, I'm so impressed with you. I mean, one of the things I love about everything you're doing is, you know, you're still a relatively young guy and you made a deliberate choice in that you could continue to work as a consultant and have a very lucrative career working with energy companies and others. Instead, you've decided to take all of this intellectual capital, all your training and your passion and a vision to do right. And I appreciate that. There's not many people like you, but we need more people like you. So I appreciate you coming on the show, being so generous with your time and for the vision that you're putting into the market. And I can't wait to have you back on a year from now to continue to hear even more about your success and your team's success. Well, I really appreciate it, Aaron. It's nice of you to say. And hopefully a year from now, we won't be in our basements. No. Maybe we can meet up for a bike ride or something like that. You'll probably kick my ass, but that's okay. It's all right. I'm totally down for that. Sounds like a plan. (laughs) I'll detrain for a year. There you go. Perfect. Exactly. Thanks, man. Thanks. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Mm-hmm.